It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm Rachel Campos Duffy. I'm Will Kane, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. He's won Iowa by double digits. Former President Trump victorious in the Iowa Republican caucus with a tight race for second and third as everyone heads to New Hampshire and South Carolina. I think what the data and what the results show out of Iowa is that Trump is in, you know, commanding position that is well positioned to translate to a lot of other states. I'm Dave Anthony. Israel is under growing pressure to scale back the war in Gaza. But they're still not able to achieve the goal of eliminating Hamas and rescuing the hostages. The two top leaders of Hamas inside Gaza are hiding among the hostages. And so the Israelis can't simply use their air force to bomb these bunkers underground. And they can't conduct any sort of raid that would risk the lives of the hostages. And I'm Jason Chaffetz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. It was an early call Monday night. Not long after the caucuses began, former President Trump was the projected winner. It appeared with over 50 percent of the vote. Thank you. We love you all. What a turnout. What a crowd. And I really think this is time now for everybody, our country, to come together. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. It would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing that's practically never been like this. It's just so important. And I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. Now, coming in second place was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis with just over 21 percent of the vote. And his speech may have sounded even more victorious than Trump's. Because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, Everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. While polling had DeSantis in second place for a while ahead of Monday night, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley had started surging in the polls. In some cases, she was in second place. But Monday night put her in third place with just over 19% of the vote. I can safely say... Tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Haley also focused her comments in on Trump and Biden together. Trump and Biden are both about 80 years old. Trump and Biden both put our country trillions of dollars deeper in debt and our kids will never forgive them for it. And tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy said he didn't pull off the surprise he'd hoped for and announced he was suspending his campaign and endorsing Trump. Now, while former President Trump's comments were conciliatory toward his opponents, he said President Biden was the worst president ever. Not a big surprise, but this was a commanding victory by, by Donald Trump. The question was, do, does Trump's support match, the, the, does the enthusiasm of his supporters match what we're seeing in the numbers? Josh Krausauer is Fox News Radio's political analyst, and he's joined later in the segment by Fox News Radio's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Jared Halpern. Look, Donald Trump won 98 
out of 99 counties in Iowa. The one he lost was by one vote, right? <laughs> Nikki Haley only really had any strength in the suburbs and fell short of, of sort of expectations, you know, in, in, in terms of racking up support among those moderate, independent-minded voters around Des Moines and some of the other big population centers. And Ron DeSantis, look, this is the guy who spent uh, more money here spent a lot of time here, had the, organi- the vaunted organization uh, in, in the state of Iowa, put all his chips in the Iowa basket, and what, 21% second place, yeah. 30 points behind Donald Trump. I mean, this was a big night for Donald Trump. You could hear when he was being very mag- magnanimous yeah. in his victory speech, he knows that he is on a pretty strong glide path to, to, to the nomination. New Hampshire may be a little more difficult. Nikki Haley's got her home state of South Carolina. But 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 the big picture is Donald Trump is in a pretty commanding position uh, for this Republican nomination. Jared, it was such a dominant night for former President Trump. What is the, the Biden campaign going to do with this now? I don't think they do anything different. If you have listened to not just uh, President Biden, but his campaign manager, everybody up and down the campaign, they have been running against Donald Trump, right? They, they believe that he is the uh, not just the, the Republican nominee, but, but like the face of the Republican Party. So even let's say that this night went differently, right? And Nikki Haley had a huge night. And then we're talking about how she's on a glide path to the nomination, right? I don't think that would have changed the strategy for the Biden campaign, right? They are fully uh, on running against sort of the, the Trump wing of the party. They are trying to appeal to independent voters, to maybe even sort of soft Republican voters, those sort of suburban voters about this is not just an issues campaign. This is about Mm -hmm. the very stake of democracy, right? You're going to hear the president talk a lot about, uh, as he has called it, a dereliction of duty by former President Trump uh, as it relates to January 6th, that the rhetoric that he's using is dangerous and it incites violence, and that even if you don't agree with me on every issue, on tax policy, on energy policy, there is something more at stake here. And that's the argument that I expect to continue to move forward from the uh, Biden campaign and the Biden White House, frankly. Josh, you were noting the win uh, really ran across the full spectrum of Republican voters, right? It was the moderates, the evangelicals. It seemed like a little slice of of everybody went for former President Trump. You were looking at some of the data. Do we extract anything from that in terms of suburban voters, independent voters in swing states, if anything? Or is this this specific to Iowa? Well, no, Trump is going to be the, the heavy favorite in, in a lot of the, the states to come. Now, New Hampshire may be his weakest state because independents can participate. Even some Democrats may cross over to vote in the Republican primary. But I think what the data and what the results show out of Iowa is that Trump is in you know commanding position that is well positioned to translate to a lot of other states. I mean, you mentioned two of the big, the big constituencies. Evangelical voters, that was his weak spot. That was the kryptonite for Trump yeah. in 2016. The AP uh, entrance poll showed Trump winning 59% of evangelical voters in Iowa. DeSantis you know, had, had Bob Vanderplatz's endorsement, only got 18% of that vote. Uh, suburbanites, that's Nikki, you know, Nikki Haley's sweet spot, moderate voters. Trump actually won moderate voters by double digits, won suburbanites by, by a healthy enough margin. Oh, wow. So even though Haley did quite well, not enough to win, Trump still is winning outside of the MAGA base, which shows he's going to be a formidable presence well beyond Iowa. And- You know, 
when it came time to the speeches, Ron DeSantis sounded almost more victorious than President Trump. What does he do between now and South Carolina, which is what, over five weeks away? Two, what is it, two tick, one of the two tickets. Everyone wants a ticket out of Iowa. But <laughs> the reality is Trump, Trump's got the, the pole position. He's got the, 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 the Excel Express, and, and they're trying to play some catch-up. Look, DeSantis has a real, real problem ahead because Iowa was a state where he put all the chips on the table and, and – finished 30 points behind Donald Trump. Right. So New Hampshire is not a state that's hospitable to Ron DeSantis. He was trailing Vivek Ramaswamy in some of the polls in New Hampshire. And South Carolina is Nikki Haley's home state. Yeah. So there's just no obvious place for Ron DeSantis to go other than raise money, spend money, and try to figure out a way to get some momentum somewhere. Haley has a more logical path to uh, you know, getting, making a comeback or showing some momentum. Look, if she beats Donald Trump in New Hampshire, that's a heck of a story. And that's something that's very very possible, though after results, I would not, not bet on it. But New Hampshire may be Trump weakest state yeah. on the map. And Nikki Haley spent a lot of money and spent a lot of time there. Jared, Nikki Haley said <laughs> during her speech that Iowa made it officially a two-person race, even though she's in third. And then she really worked at like linking Trump and Biden, putting them together, I think due mostly to age, right? She said age, the, uh, deficit spending, uh, that they trillion, are both yeah, trillions establishment of dollars added to people. Uh, I think at one point she called it the Trump-Biden policies. Um, listen, that is, it was remarkable to hear that kind of energy, I suppose, from somebody who finished third. Um, that being said, uh, to Josh's point, she does appear to be in a pretty strong position in New Hampshire. Is it enough to overcome the deficit that she currently finds herself in against Trump? I don't know. I, I think that the Christie vote may help. Yeah, I, I think as we've heard from, from others, maybe DeSantis staying in the race may help. But her argument from the very beginning of this race has been that she's like the non-chaos candidate, right? She, is, uh, she likes to talk about how, you know, whether you agree with Trump or not, that he brings drama and he brings chaos and the country can't have that. She's also now taken to uh, sort of a, a Trump tactic, if you will, of very closely watching polls in which she is doing well in <laughs> uh, against President Biden, right? In her uh, speech, uh, you know, after the Iowa caucuses, she said, listen, if it's Biden and Trump, it's a 50-50 race. It's a coin flip. Maybe Trump wins. Maybe Biden wins. But if it's me, you know I'm going to win, right? <laughs> and so that's her appeal, I suppose, to uh, a large majority of Republican voters who haven't really been interested in her. And it's notable because you look at um, some of the polling even here in Iowa, right? And we talked about that uh, Des Moines Register poll, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of the gold standard. It came out 48 hours before the caucus. She was in second place. But if you sort of read deeper into the poll, there were all these red flags about, well, but her support isn't the most enthusiastic. So yeah. if it's a low turnout, uh, caucus, she probably is going to perform under what the polling says. And you see that in poll after poll after poll with Nikki Haley, yeah. right? She is generally not a second choice when you look at, deeper into these polls. And I just wonder kind of how you, you move forward after New Hampshire uh, with that kind of, of polling kind of makeup. Hmm. All right. Finally, Josh, President Trump was saying thank you in the beginning. He was talking about his family. It was almost, he was almost effusively thankful, um, talking about his, his late mother-in-law. He seemed emotional. And then he said, you know, we have to come together now. I think he said it a couple of times. And there were no nicknames for DeSantis and Haley. It was, it, he even complimented them. I think he called them smart or capable, um, complimented Vivek. Have you, 
have you heard President Trump sound quite like that? And what do we take away from from that tone? What is this? The new, new gentler, softer Donald Trump. We haven't seen much of this, but I think there's a political reason for why he sounded very uh, magnanimous. He wants to unite the Republican Party. He wants to get some of those Haley voters on his side. He wants, you know, this is going to be a tough, you know, whatever the polls show, this is going to be a neck and neck race if he's the nominee against Joe Biden. And uh, to, to win in a, in a hotly contested race means he needs to get the Trump skeptical voters to his side. He needs those Haley voters. And then maybe they don't like him that much. Maybe they, don't, they, they worry about his style. Well, he's trying to show that he can offer them something. They may agree with him on policy, don't like his tone. Well, that was a different tone. And it's one that suggests that he's trying to actually play smart politics and, and build the party, maybe even pick a running mate, perhaps, yeah. that f- is more from the traditional wing of the Republican Party. Washington, D.C. correspondent Jared Halvern and Fox News Radio political analyst Josh Kassar, thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Jason Chaffetz with your Fox News commentary coming up. It's day 102 of the war in Gaza, and pressure mounts for Israel to scale back the fight against Hamas. It's clear that the conflict will move and needs to move to a lower-intensity phase. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who just spent a week in the region trying to find a diplomatic solution as Israel defends itself at the UN's International Court of Justice, where South Africa filed suit, accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza, where more than 24,000 Palestinians have been killed and nearly 2 million civilians displaced. Israeli attorney Gilad Noam argued before the judges... If ever resort to force in self-defense against an enemy hiding behind civilians can be portrayed as genocide and trigger provisional measures, an inevitable tension will be created. The war has evolved since Hamas's terror attack that killed 1,200 Israelis in October triggered it. Israeli forces have largely wrapped up their operations in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Trey Yingst is a Fox News foreign correspondent in Tel Aviv and has had a front row seat to the war. And so today the operations are focused on clearing the central camps where there are still many civilians and then the more complex arena in the south of Gaza that includes the cities of Khan Yunis and Rafah. Now at the beginning of this war, Israeli forces did leaflet drops, phone calls and text messages urging the more than 2 million Palestinians living inside Gaza to head to the southern part of the Strip. The challenging part now is that you now have Hamas leaders that are hiding there in the tunnel network beneath Gaza. They are holding some of the 130 hostages that are estimated to still be held by the organization. And the Israeli forces are being urged by the international community, including their key ally, the United States, to enter into a new, more targeted phase of this conflict. But how do they do that? And how can they get to these Hamas leaders and fighters with the civilians, with the hostages in place? We've had 100 plus days of war and Hamas still has probably a majority of its fighters still there. 
the battlefield for the Israelis is more challenging each and every day. We have gone into Gaza three separate times with the Israeli military, and each embed has been different, but we have seen the close quarters fighting that they are conducting against Hamas, the gun battles, and the urban environment that they are facing. The tunnel network is really the most challenging for Israeli forces as they try to figure out how to operate in the days ahead. Israeli intelligence, according to reports, indicates Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Def, the two top leaders of Hamas inside Gaza, are hiding among the hostages. And so the Israelis can't simply use their air force to bomb these bunkers underground, and they can't conduct any sort of raid that would risk the lives of the hostages. And it does raise the question, will ultimately, if they want the hostages out alive, will they be forced to the negotiating table in some capacity? Israel and Hamas have not been able to come up with a firm understanding about what a ceasefire would look like that could either temporarily pause the fighting or end the conflict altogether. You know, you mentioned the hostages that are still there. Of the 130 or so, Israel has already said that more than 20 of them are dead, but they're still in Hamas custody. On uh, Sunday, Hamas put out a video showing three hostages, and apparently two of them are dead now. Is that correct? The video actually shows the bodies of these two Israelis, who in a previous video were shown alive, calling on the government of Israel to end the war and to stop the bombardment of Gaza. Now, this is used by Hamas as a propaganda technique, as a parallel information and psychological war against Israel. And these videos are incredibly difficult for the population to consume here. When you watch Israeli media, all of the national channels are on this story 24-7. They are following the developments each and every hour. And so when this video was released and there was proof that these individuals were alive. We're talking about one man who was 53 years old and another who was 38. It gave the public hope yet again. And then Hamas releasing another video taking away that hope. And that is, is part of this conflict, trying to uh, put pressure on the Israeli government to end the war. And the initial video saying, your government is lying to you. They want the Israeli public to turn against the leadership and to end the air and ground campaign against Gaza. You've been, you've talked about being in Gaza. Not only have you been with the military, you've seen for yourself the humanitarian crisis. Talk to some of the civilians. What do they tell you? Really, the most pressing issue on the minds of Palestinian civilians that we talk to are how they're going to get things like food, water, and medicine. Because it is incredibly challenging to get these resources inside Gaza at the moment. There is a developing humanitarian crisis, despite Israeli officials saying otherwise. But it is a dire situation when you have such a densely populated area that is trapped amid this war. There are going to be civilian casualties, and Israel has been criticized for the amount of civilian casualties. The Palestinian health ministry that is run by Hamas, but that has historically been used as the benchmark of the death toll inside Gaza during conflict between the two sides, says that more than half of those killed are children. And we've seen the images from hospitals in Gaza. They are desperate for medicine and supplies. There are credible reports of doctors performing surgery without anesthesia for patients who need surgery, otherwise they could face death. 
And so this is the dire situation for Palestinian civilians. There is no solution to ease the pressure right now if the Israeli military campaign continues. And so there are some humanitarian efforts underway, not just from places like the United Nations, but also individual countries like the Jordanians who have conducted airdrops of aid into Gaza, the Emiratis and the Qataris who have made sure their aid is part of the, the convoy of trucks going into the Strip. And that aid will have to increase because, as we have seen firsthand, the level of destruction in Gaza is catastrophic. Gaza City, the largest population center in the Strip, is leveled in certain areas. And people were living there before the war started, and they will have to have some place to live and return to. There's also concern on Israel's northern border. There have been rockets fired by Hezbollah from Lebanon into Israel. That continues. There have been skirmishes across the border. How serious is the risk of escalation there? It's a real serious risk. Hezbollah has already fired, according to the military, more than 1,000 projectiles. We're talking about mortars, rockets, uh, and anti-tank guided missiles. But the group has precision guided missiles. They have hundreds of thousands, according to defense officials that we've spoken with, missiles and rockets that they would rain down on Israeli cities if a broader war erupts between Hezbollah and Israel. They understand that if a full-scale war erupts, Israel's air defense systems, including the widely used Iron Dome, will be overwhelmed. You will have missiles raining into cities in the north, like Haifa, and even as far as Israel's first and second largest city, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And estimates say there will be thousands of Israeli casualties if a war like that does erupt. There is an effort by Israeli officials, including the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, to send that message. And they have. They have gone on television here and they have said, we will do to Beirut what we did to Gaza City. And we talked about the destruction there. And that is the threat that they are making. They want Hezbollah to move from Israel's northern border and stop the fire into northern Israel. And they've been clear that if there is not a diplomatic solution, and each day that passes, it is less likely that one will be found, they will use military force to do so. Another Iran-backed group is also causing trouble. Houthi militants attacked another ship on Monday, a U.S.-owned cargo vessel, after another missile aimed at an American warship was shot down days after the U.S.-led military strikes hit Houthi targets inside Yemen. And they have a choice to make. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. does not want this battle with the Houthis. Everything the president has been doing has been trying to prevent uh, any escalation of conflict. Republican lawmakers want the U.S. to be more aggressive with Iran. I fear we're going to just engage in this incremental tit-for-tat. Congressman Mike Gallagher tells Fox. Such an approach, I think, signals to our enemies that the Biden administration is still reluctant to provoke Iran. And so the threat remains to commercial shipping in and around the Red Sea. It's only a, a matter of time before you see more incidents like the one on Monday where this U.S.-owned ship was directly hit. And so there is a, a broader question here about what the United States does if the Houthis continue to fire missiles and drones, as we've seen in the past. Will they launch more airstrikes against Houthi positions in Yemen? It's certainly on the table, but there are other options that they could use to increase pressure on the Houthis. And so far, no one has taken off the table, both the Americans and the Israelis, the idea of striking Iran, if needed 
to send a message that threats from their proxies across the Middle East won't be tolerated. If Iran is directly hit, then what? What's the fear? The fear is that there would be a more direct response from the Iranian regime. But Iran historically has threatened the United States and its allies and then not always acted on those threats. They have strategic patience in a lot of ways, despite the rhetoric that the Islamic Republic uses and and officials in Tehran use on on a weekly basis. Israel says they are prepared, even if the Iranians were to be directly involved in a regional conflict, but that is widely seen as one of the worst case scenarios in all of this. There is some hope that officials are holding on to that the war in Gaza will eventually be over. There will be some sort of diplomatic solution that will allow for the release of some hostages and end to the the ground fighting, and then some sort of security establishment that will end threats to Israelis living in the southern part of this country. And then you could look at the other fronts. There could be a diplomatic solution with the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah to move their elite forces back from the border that would threaten Israeli communities and allow tens of thousands of civilians to return home. And then if the Houthis in Yemen reduce their fire, you are looking at a situation where the heat could certainly be turned down. With that said, that's one of of many options in an incredibly unpredictable arena and a theater that remains active on a daily basis. Well, we hope that that would all happen and we could end all this at some point in the near future. Trey Yingst, foreign correspondent in Tel Aviv on the war in Gaza and beyond. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Jalosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. Investigators have released new sketches of the Happy Face serial killer's last unknown victim as they use DNA advancements to try to identify a woman named Claudia. Keith Hunter Jesperson admitted to murdering at least eight women in different states in the 90s, sending letters to the press about his killing signed with a smiley face. Jesperson says he met a hitchhiker he called Claudia in Victorville, California, who wanted a ride to Los Angeles. He says he drove her south when a heated argument at a rest stop escalated to murder. Jesperson dumped her body on the side of the road in Riverside County, where she was found in August of 1992. Claudia is the only known happy face victim that has yet to be identified. Investigators aren't even sure that's the woman's real name. The Riverside County District Attorney's Office tracked down living relatives through DNA, but her biological father is dead and there have been no biological matches to her mother. Jesperson was arrested in 1995 and is serving life without parole at the Oregon State Penitentiary. There's more on the story at foxnews.com. Subscribe to the Fox True Crime Podcast with Emily Campagno. I'm Gianna Jalosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Chaffetz. What's on your mind? Congress has a very full schedule ahead of itself. Not only do they need to fund the government, they have to deal with what we're going to do as a nation to support Israel and what are we going to do with Ukraine. And on top of that, you have a border bill. 
a question about whether or not Joe Biden as president is going to enforce the laws in this country on that southern border. Do they need more money? How much money? And how and what would Congress do to affect the laws there on the border? Let's start with funding. Funding has got to happen. Now, an agreement has come to place that will supposedly extend the government and its funding through March. The new speaker has to deal with the right flank of the party who does not like to extend government continually on an omnibus or a continuing resolution. At the same time, he's got to be able to convince the Senate to move forward. With the Iowa caucus now in the rearview mirror, Congress has got to get back to work to actually fund the government. But they're going to need time if they're going to go through the 12 appropriations bills. And as it comes to the border, which is tied to Ukraine and Israel, there's no reason why Congress can't get its act together and do all three in addressing them. Should they be tied together or should they be standalone questions? This is what Congress is going to have to deal with. Personally, I believe they should be dealt with separately, up and down votes on specifics of what they're going to do and not do. But this is the sausage making process. Now that Congress has the political calendar and it's in full motion on what's going to happen at the presidency, they have got to do their jobs and their business and come together in a united way and somehow be able to pass some bills so that the government can continue to be funded and that we can continue on with the people's business. If it was easy, it would have been done a long time ago. No doubt it'll be hard and contentious. But look for the amount of debates and the quality of the debates that happen, because nothing in this nation should move forward without a good, vibrant discussion. Moving forward with continuing resolutions and omnibuses in perpetuity is something that this country has got to get away from. Maybe they do a short one to get it through March, but then what do they do with that moving forward? That's the big question, and it all starts this week in the United States Congress. I'm Jason Chaffetz, host of the Jason in the House podcast and a contributor at Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.